Section 5 of Revolution and Other Essays by Jack London, published 1910. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremy Robertson. Section 5, Goliath Part 2, by Jack London. Goliath's next summons was to the ten leading scientists of the United States. This time there was no hesitancy in obeying. The savants were ludicrously prompt, some of them waiting in San Francisco for weeks so as not to miss the scheduled sailing date. They departed on the Energon on June 15th, and while they were on the sea on the way to Palgrave Island, Goliath performed another spectacular feat. Germany and France were preparing to fly at each other's throats. Goliath commanded peace. They ignored the command, tacitly agreeing to fight it out on land where it seemed safer for the belligerently inclined. Goliath set the date of June 19 for the cessation of hostile preparations. Both countries mobilized their armies on June 18 and hurled them at the common frontier, and on June 19, Goliath struck. All generals, war secretaries, and jingo leaders in the two countries died on that day, and that day two vast armies, undirected like strayed sheep, walked over each other's frontiers and fraternized. But the great German warlord had escaped. It was learned afterward by hiding in the huge safe where were stored the secret archives of his empire. And when he emerged, he was a very penitent warlord. And like the Mikado of Japan, he was set to work, beating his sword blades into plowshares and pruning hooks. But in the escape of the German emperor was discovered a great significance. The scientists of the world plucked up courage, got back their nerve. One thing was conclusively evident. Goliath's power was not magic. Law still reigned in the universe. Goliath's power had limitations, else had the German emperor not escaped by secretly hiding in a steel safe. Many learned articles on the subject appeared in the magazines. The ten scientists arrived back from Palgrave Island on July 6. Heavy platoons of police protected them from the reporters. No, they had not seen Goliath, they said in the one official interview that was vouchsafed, but they had talked with him, and they had seen things. They were not permitted to state definitely all that they had seen and heard, but they could say that the world was about to be revolutionized. Goliath was in the possession of a tremendous discovery that placed all the world at his mercy, and it was a good thing for the world that Goliath was merciful. The ten scientists proceeded directly to Washington on a special train where, for days, they were closeted with the heads of government while the nation hung breathless on the outcome. But the outcome was a long time in arriving. From Washington, the president issued commands to the masters and leading figures of the nation. Everything was secret. Day by day, deputations of bankers, railway lords, captains of industry, and Supreme Court justices arrived, and when they arrived, they remained. The weeks dragged on, and then, on August 25th, began the famous issuance of proclamations. Congress and the Senate cooperated with the president in this, while the Supreme Court justices gave their sanction, and the money lords and captains of industry agreed. War was declared upon the capitalist masters of the nation. Martial law was declared over the whole United States. The supreme power was vested in the president. In one day, child labor in the whole country was abolished. It was done by decree, and the United States was prepared with its army to enforce its decrees. In the same day, all women factory workers were dismissed to their homes, and all the sweatshops were closed. But we cannot make profits, wailed the petty capitalists. Fools, was the retort of Goliath, as if the meaning of life were profits. Give up your businesses and your profit-mongering. But there is nobody to buy our business, they wailed. Buy and sell, is that all the meaning life has for you? Replied Goliath, you have nothing to sell. Turn over your little cut-throating, anarchistic businesses to the government so that they may be rationally organized and operated. And the next day, by decree, the government began taking possession of all factories, shops, mines, ships, railroads, and producing lands. 
the nationalization of the means of production and distribution went on apace here and there were skeptical capitalists of movement they were made prisoners and hailed to palgrave island and when they returned they always acquiesced in what the government was doing a little later the journey to palgrave island became unnecessary when objection was made the reply of the officials was goliah has spoken which was another way of saying he must be obeyed the captains of industry became heads of departments it was found that civil engineers for instance worked just as well in government employ as before they had worked in private employ it was found that men of high executive ability could not violate their nature they could not escape exercising their executive ability any more than a crab could escape crawling or a bird could escape flying and so it was that all the splendid force of the men who had previously worked for themselves was now put to work for the good of society the half-dozen great railway chiefs cooperated in the organizing of a national system of railways that was amazingly efficacious never again was there such a thing as a car shortage these chiefs were not the wall street railway magnates but they were the men who formerly had done the real work while in the employ of the wall street magnates wall street was dead there was no more buying and selling and speculating nobody had anything to buy or sell there was nothing in which to speculate put the stock gamblers to work said goliah give those that are young and that so desire a chance to learn useful trades put the drummers and salesmen and advertising agents and real estate agents to work said goliah and by hundreds of thousands the erstwhile useless middlemen and parasites went into useful occupations the four hundred thousand idle gentlemen of the country who had lived upon incomes were likewise put to work then there were a lot of helpless men in high places who were cleared out the remarkable thing about this being that they were cleared out by their own fellows of this class were the professional politicians whose wisdom and power consisted of manipulating machine politics and of grafting there was no longer any graft since there were no private interests to purchase special privileges no bribes were offered to legislators and legislators for the first time legislated for the people the result was that men who were efficient not in corruption but in direction found their way into the legislatures with this rational organization of society amazing results were brought about the national day's work was about eight hours and yet production increased in spite of the great permanent improvements and of the immense amount of energy consumed in systematizing the competitive chaos of society production doubled and tripled upon itself the standard of living increased and still consumption could not keep up with production the maximum working age was decreased to fifty years to forty-nine years and to forty-eight years the minimum working age went up from sixteen years to eighteen years the eight-hour day became a seven-hour day and in a few months the national working day was reduced to five hours in the meantime glimmerings were being caught not of the identity of goliath but of how he had worked and prepared for his assuming control of the world little things leaked out clues were followed up apparently unrelated things were pieced together strange stories of blacks stolen from africa were remembered of chinese and japanese contract coolies who had mysteriously disappeared of lonely south sea islands raided and their inhabitants carried away stories of yachts and merchant steamers mysteriously purchased that had disappeared and the descriptions of which remotely tallied with the crafts that had carried the orientals and africans and islanders away where had goliah got the sinews of war was the question and the surmised answer was by exploiting these stolen laborers it was they that lived in the exposed village on palgrave island it was the product of their toil that had purchased the yachts and merchant steamers and enabled goliah's agents to permeate society and carry out his will and what was the product of their toil that had given goliah the wealth necessary to realize his plans commercial radium the newspapers proclaimed and radiite and radiosol and argadium and argite and the mysterious golite that had proved so valuable in metallurgy these were the new compounds discovered in the first decade of the twentieth century the commercial and scientific use of which had become so enormous in the second decade 
The line of fruit boats that ran from Hawaii to San Francisco was declared to be the property of Goliath. This was a surmise, for no other owner could be discovered, and the agents who handled the shipments of the fruit boats were only agents. Since no one else owned the fruit boats, then Goliath must own them. The point of which is that it leaked out that the major portion of the world's supply in these precious compounds was brought to San Francisco by those very fruit boats. That the whole claim of surmise was correct was proved in later years when Goliath's slaves were liberated and honorably pensioned by the international government of the world. It was at that time that the seal of secrecy was lifted from the lips of his agents and higher emissaries, and those that chose revealed much of the mystery of Goliath's organization and methods. His destroying angels, however, remained forever dumb. Who the men were who went forth to the high places and killed at his bidding will be unknown to the end of time, for kill they did by means of that very subtle and then mysterious force that Goliath had discovered and named Energon. But at that time, Energon, the little giant that was destined to do the work of the world, was unknown and undreamed of. Only Goliath knew, and he kept his secret well. Even his agents, who were armed with it, and who, in the case of the yacht Energon, destroyed a mighty fleet of warships by exploding their magazines, knew not what the subtle and potent force was, nor how it was manufactured. They knew only one of its many uses, and in that one use they had been instructed by Goliath. It is now known that Radiite and Radiosol and all the other compounds were byproducts of the manufacture of Energon by Goliath from the sunlight, but at that time nobody knew what Energon was, and Goliath continued to awe and rule the world. One of the uses of Energon was in wireless telegraphy. It was by its means that Goliath was able to communicate with his agents all over the world. At that time, the apparatus required by an agent was so clumsy that it could not be packed in anything less than a fair-sized steamer trunk. Today, thanks to the improvements of Hensall, the perfected apparatus can be carried in a coat pocket. It was in December 1924 that Goliath sent out his famous Christmas letter, part of the text which is here given. So far, while I have kept the rest of the nations from each other's throats, I have devoted myself particularly to the United States. Now I have not given to the people of the United States a rational social organization. What I have done has been to compel them to make that organization themselves. There is more laughter in the United States these days, and there is more sense. Food and shelter are no longer obtained by the anarchistic methods of so-called individualism, but are now well-nigh automatic. And the beauty of it is that the people of the United States achieved this all for themselves. I did not achieve it for them. I repeat, they achieved it for themselves. All that I did was to put the fear of death in the hearts of the few that sat in the high places and obstructed the coming of rationality and laughter. The fear of death made those in the high places get out of the way, that was all, and gave the intelligence of man a chance to realize itself socially. In the year that is to come I shall devote myself to the rest of the world. I shall put the fear of death in the hearts of all that sit in the high places in all the nations. And they will do as they have done in the United States, get down out of the high places and give the intelligence of man a chance for social rationality. All the nations shall tread the path the United States is now on. And when all the nations are well along on that path, I shall have something else for them. But first they must travel that path for themselves. They must demonstrate that the intelligence of mankind today, with the mechanical energy now at its disposal, is capable of organizing society so that food and shelter be made automatic, labor be reduced to a three-hour day, and joy and laughter be made universal. And when that is accomplished, not by me, but by the intelligence of mankind, then I shall make a present to the world of a new mechanical energy. This is my discovery. This energon is nothing more nor less than the cosmic energy that resides in the solar rays. When it is harnessed by mankind, it will do the work of the world. There will be no more multitudes of miners slaving out their lives in the bowels of the earth, no more sooty firemen and greasy engineers. All may dress in white if they so will. 
the work of life will become play, and young and old will be the children of joy, and the business of living will become joy, and they will compete, one with another, in achieving ethical concepts and spiritual heights, in fashioning pictures and songs, in stories, in statecraft and beautycraft, in the sweat and the endeavor of the wrestler and the runner and the player of games. All will compete, not for sordid coin and base material reward, but for the joy that shall be theirs in the development and vigor of flesh and in the development and keenness of spirit. All will be joysmiths, and their tasks shall be to beat out laughter from the ringing anvil of life. And now one word for the immediate future. On New Year's Day all nations shall disarm, all fortresses and warships shall be dismantled, and all armies shall be disbanded. On New Year's Day all the world disarmed. The millions of soldiers and sailors and workmen in the standing armies, in the navies and in the countless arsenals, machine shops and factories for the manufacture of war machinery, were dismissed to their homes. These many millions of men, as well as their costly war machinery, had hitherto been supported on the back of labor. They now went into useful occupations, and the released labor giant heaved a mighty sigh of relief. The policing of the world was left to the peace officers and was purely social, whereas war had been distinctly antisocial. Ninety percent of the crimes against society had been crimes against private property. With the passing of private property, at least in the means of production, and with the organization of industry that gave every man a chance, the crimes against private property practically ceased. The police forces everywhere were reduced repeatedly and again and again. Nearly all occasional and habitual criminals ceased voluntarily from their depredations. There was no longer any need for them to commit crime. They merely changed with changing conditions. A smaller number of criminals was put into hospitals and cured, and the remnant of the hopelessly criminal and degenerate was segregated and the courts in all countries were likewise decreased in number again and again. Ninety-five percent of all civil cases had been squabbles over property, conflicts of property rights, lawsuits, contests of will, breaches of contract, bankruptcies, etc. With the passing of private property, this ninety-five percent of the cases that had cluttered the courts also passed. The courts became shadows, attenuated ghosts, rudimentary vestiges of anarchistic times that had preceded the coming of Goliath. The year 1925 was a lively year in the world's history. Goliath ruled the world with a strong hand. Kings and emperors journeyed to Palgrave Island, saw the wonders of Energon, and went away, with the fear of death in their hearts, to abdicate thrones and crowns and hereditary licenses. When Goliath spoke to politicians, so-called statesmen, they obeyed or died. He dictated universal reforms, dissolved refractory parliaments, and to the great conspiracy that was formed of mutinous money lords and captains of industry, he sent his destroying angels. The time is past for fooling, he told them. You are anachronisms. You stand in the way of humanity. To the scrap heap with you. To those that protested, and they were many, he said, This is no time for logomachy. You can argue for centuries. It is what you have done in the past. I have no time for argument. Get out of the way. With the exception of putting a stop to war and of indicating the broad general plan, Goliath did nothing. By putting the fear of death into the hearts of those that sat in the high places and obstructed progress, Goliath made the opportunity for the unshackled intelligence of the best social thinkers of the world to exert itself. Goliath left all the multitudinous details of reconstruction to these social thinkers. He wanted them to prove that they were able to do it, and they proved it. It was due to their initiative that the white plague was stamped out from the world. It was due to them, and in spite of a deal of protesting from the sentimentalists, that all the extreme hereditary and efficients were segregated and denied marriage. Goliath had nothing whatever to do with the instituting of the colleges of invention. This idea originated practically, simultaneously, in the minds of thousands of social thinkers. The time was ripe for the realization of the idea, and everywhere arose the splendid institutions of invention. For the first time the ingenuity of man was loosed upon the problem of simplifying life, instead of upon the making of money-earning devices. 
the affairs of life such as house cleaning dish and window washing dust removing and scrubbing and clothes washing and all the endless sordid and necessary details were simplified by invention until they became automatic we of today cannot realize the barbarously filthy and slavish lifestyles of those that lived prior to nineteen twenty five the international government of the world was another idea that sprang simultaneously into the minds of thousands the successful realization of this idea was a surprise to many, but as a surprise it was nothing to that received by the mildly Protestant sociologists and biologists when irrefutable facts exploded the doctrine of Malthus. With leisure and joy in the world, with an immensely higher standard of living, and with the enormous spaciousness of opportunity for recreation, development, and pursuit of beauty and nobility and all the higher attributes, the birth rate fell, and fell astoundingly. People ceased breeding like cattle and better than that it was immediately noticeable that a higher average of children was being born the doctrine of malthus was knocked into a cocked hat or flung to the scrap heap as goliah would have put it all that goliah had predicted that the intelligence of mankind could accomplish with the mechanical energy at its disposal came to pass human dissatisfaction practically disappeared the elderly people were the great grumblers but when they were honorably pensioned by society as they passed the age limit for work the great majority ceased grumbling they found themselves better off in their idle old days under the new regime enjoying vastly more pleasure and comforts than they had in their busy and toilsome youth under the old regime the younger generation had easily adapted itself to the changed order and the very young had never known anything else the sum of human happiness had increased enormously the world had become gay and sane even the old fogies of professors of sociology who had opposed with might and maim the coming of the new regime made no complaint they were a score of times better remunerated than in the old days and they were not worked nearly so hard besides they were busy revising sociology and writing new textbooks on the subject here and there it is true there were atavisms men who yearned for the flesh-pots and cannibal feasts of the old alleged individualism creatures long of teeth and savage of claw who wanted to prey upon their fellow-men but they were looked upon as diseased and were treated in hospitals a small remnant however proved incurable and was confined in asylums and denied marriage thus there was no progeny to inherit their atavistic tendencies as the years went by goliah dropped out of the running of the world there was nothing for him to run the world was running itself and doing it smoothly and beautifully in nineteen thirty seven goliah made his long-promised present of energon to the world he himself had devised a thousand ways in which the little giants should do the work of the world all of which he made public at the same time but instantly the colleges of invention seized upon energon and utilized it in a hundred thousand additional ways in fact as goliah confessed in his letter of march nineteen thirty eight the colleges of invention cleared up several puzzling features of energon that had baffled him during the preceding years with the introduction of the use of energon the two-hour workday was cut down almost to nothing as goliah predicted work indeed became play and so tremendous was man's productive capacity due to energon and the rational social utilization of it that the humblest citizen enjoyed leisure and time and opportunity for an immensely greater abundance of living than had the most favored under the old anarchistic system nobody had ever seen goliah and all peoples began to clamor for their savior to appear while the world did not minimize his discovery of energon it was decided that greater than that was his wide social vision he was a superman a scientific superman and the curiosity of the world to see him had become well-nigh unbearable it was nineteen forty one after much hesitancy on his part that he finally emerged from palgrave island he arrived on june sixth in san francisco and for the first time since his retirement to palgrave island the world looked upon his face and the world was disappointed its imagination had been touched an heroic figure had been made out of goliath he was the man or the demigod rather who had turned the planet over the deeds of alexander caesar genghis khan and napoleon were as the play of babes alongside his colossal achievements 
and ashore in san francisco and through its streets stepped and rode a little old man sixty-five years of age well preserved with a pink and white complexion and a bald spot on his head the size of an apple he was short-sighted and wore spectacles but when the spectacles were removed his eyes were quizzical blue eyes like a child's filled with mild wonder at the world also his eyes had a way of twinkling accompanied by a screwing up of the face as if he had laughed at the huge joke he had played upon the world trapping it in spite of itself into happiness and laughter for a scientific superman and world tyrant he had remarkable weakness he loved sweets and was inordinately fond of salted almonds and salted pecans especially of the latter he always carried a paper bag of them in his pocket and he had a way of saying frequently that the chemism of his nature demanded such fare perhaps his most astonishing failing was cats he had an ineradicable aversion to that domestic animal it will be remembered that he fainted dead away with sudden fright while speaking in brotherhood palace when the janitor's cat walked out upon the stage and brushed against his legs but no sooner had he revealed himself to the world than he was identified old-time friends had no difficulty in recognizing him as percival stultz the german-american who in eighteen ninety eight had worked in the union ironworks and who for two years at that time had been secretary of branch three hundred and sixty nine of the international brotherhood of machinists it was in nineteen o one then twenty-five years of age that he had taken special scientific courses at the university of california at the same time supporting himself by soliciting what was then known as life insurance his records as a student are preserved in the university museum and they are unenviable he is remembered by the professors he sat under chiefly for his absent-mindedness undoubtedly even then he was catching glimpses of the wide vision that later were to be his his naming himself goliah and shrouding himself in mystery was his little joke he later explained as goliah or any other thing like that he said he was able to touch the imagination of the world and turn it over but as percival stultz wearing side whiskers and spectacles and weighing one hundred and eighteen pounds he would have been unable to turn over a pecan not even a salted pecan but the world quickly got over its disappointment in his personal appearance and antecedents it knew him and revered him as the mastermind of the ages and it loved him for himself for his quizzical short-sighted eyes and the inimitable way in which he screwed up his face when he laughed it loved him for his simplicity and comradeship and warm humanness and for his fondness for salted pecans and his aversion to cats and to-day in the wonder city of asgard rises in awful beauty that monument to him that dwarfs the pyramids and all the monstrous blood-stained monuments of antiquity and on that monument as all know is inscribed in imperishable bronze the prophecy and fulfillment all will be joy smiths and their tasks shall be to beat out laughter from the ringing anvil of life editorial note this remarkable production is the work of harry beckwith a student in the lowell high school of san francisco and it is here reproduced chiefly because of the youth of its author far be it from our policy to burden our readers with ancient history and when it is known that harry beckwith was only fifteen when the foregoing was written our motive will be understood goliah won the premier for high school composition in twenty two fifty four the last year harry beckwith took advantage of the privilege earned by electing to spend six months in asgard the wealth of historical detail the atmosphere of the times and the mature style of the composition are especially noteworthy in one so young end of section five recording by jeremy robertson